who am I have high in heaven but you? Besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are from thee, far from thee, will perish. But as for me, the nearness of my God is my good. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of your great works. Father, we've been singing of your great works, that you have redeemed us with precious blood, that you did not purchase our salvation with silver or with gold. But with the precious blood of the Lamb, how we bless you for this incredible grace. Thank you that you, in your mercy, stayed your wrath until the Spirit of God awakened a dead heart and brought us to a saving faith. I pray, Holy Spirit, today for all within the sound of my voice that your ministry of convicting people of sin, righteousness, and judgment might be real, that the lost might be saved, and that those of us who are saved, that we might depend upon you to live your life in and through us that we might grow further and deeper in our walk with Jesus Christ. Our Father, you've exalted your word, you said, even above your name. And so as we open it with the psalmist, we tremble that we hold in our laps today the very words that you have inspired. So help us to pay close and careful attention to what we read and help us as the Apostle James has exhorted us not to be those who just hear the Word and do nothing with it, but those who want to hear and obey it, that we might be continually shaped into the fullness of Jesus Christ. I pray for your help in this hour, and I pray tonight for our Meet the Pastor, that some of our friends on different campuses and here in this building and some online would come at 530 and that you would speak to them, those who need a church home and those who need Christ as Lord. So come now and help me, fill me and anoint me and use me for the glory of Jesus. In his holy name I pray, amen. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bible and turn to the letter of James chapter 3. If you are here for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this little letter. It's just 108 verses. You know, when I was in the first grade, I was told I had a speech impediment. I had a tongue thrust. And so once a week, I was pulled out of class, and my speech therapist, Mrs. Cox, would help me to articulate different words. I'm sure she never dreamed that I would be a preacher someday, and I'm sure I never dreamed I would be a preacher. I couldn't have even told you what a preacher was in that day. But the truth is, we all have a speech impediment, and it's called sin. And nowhere is it seen more acutely than on our tongues. And so it's no surprise to us that as James is dealing with the subject of spiritual maturity, that he addresses the issue of the tongue. If you know these verses that we're about to study this morning, they're very convicting. 
And of course, we are reminded this morning that this little piece of tongue, it's only about two ounces in weight, about four inches long. On a given day, we usually speak about 12,000 sentences, 50,000 words. If you were to take it and write it into a little book, it would comprise about a 150-page paperback. In fact, if the words that you spoke or maybe wrote this week on the internet and social media were published, how pleased would you be for people to read it? See, the Bible speaks of the tongue and the power of the tongue to be able to heal, to encourage, to edify, to teach, to support, to exhort, to sing, to pray, and to praise. But it also speaks of the power of the tongue to corrupt, to pervert, to flatter, to gossip, to blaspheme, to complain, to swear, to seduce, to destroy, to lead astray. And that's just for starters. In fact, the very first temptation was a temptation that came from words from the devil himself. The very first sin after the fall were evil spoken words. God, it wasn't me. It was the woman. He blamed God that you gave me. So the Bible teaches very clearly that the tongue and the heart are directly connected. Solomon said, a wise man's heart guides his mouth. Jesus taught that the tongue is just the messenger that delivers the mail mail out of the heart. And that's what we're going to look at. It sounds like you have found it. If you don't have a Bible, you need one. This is a Bible teaching church, and you'll promise, I promise you'll get 50% more out of any sermon I preach if you have a Bible on your lap. Don't rely on your neighbor. Listen, you don't eat off of your neighbor's plate at home. You need your own Bible to feed on God's Word this morning. James chapter 3, beginning now in verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members is that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. When I was a boy and if I felt sick, my mother would say, stick out your tongue. And of course, she did that because sticking out my tongue could tell something about the condition of the body. 
In the same way, James wants us to understand that the tongue tells a great deal about the condition of our souls. And interestingly, this particular apostle has more to say about the tongue than any other apostle in all of the New Testament. 15% of this epistle is dedicated to the tongue. And if you've read this letter, and some of you are trying to read it once a week, it takes less than 15 minutes. The subject of the tongue is not peripheral to his thinking, it's central. It's a big part of what he has to tell us. In fact, in addition to this major portion of Scripture, on five different occasions in this letter, he speaks to the subject of the tongue. We studied in chapter 1 and verse 19, "'This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger.'" Then at the conclusion of chapter 1, he writes in verse 26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. He reminds us in chapter 2 and verse 12, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Then in chapter 4, in verse 11, he writes, Do not speak against one another, brethren. He who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. And then finally in chapter 5 and in verse 12, he warns, but above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under judgment. And so the tongue is a major emphasis in this letter. Just to remind you of the context of where we are, as you can see on this chart, you will remember that the book of James divides into three major sections. Chapter 1, which we have focused on, deals with the development of our faith. Chapters 2 and 3 deal with the distortion of our faith. And we saw how our faith can be distorted via our testimony, today with our tongue, And thirdly, he will cover things that we should avoid. So this section is kind of a spirituality check. He ended chapter 1 with saying, if someone thinks that he is religious, if someone thinks that he is really spiritual but is unable to control his tongue, then he's not spiritual at all. Now, we tend to measure spirituality in other ways. How often do I go to church? How many Bible studies do I attend? How much theological knowledge have I amassed? But James says the real litmus test of whether or not we are spiritual is how we use our tongue. I can identify with the Samaritan woman that Christ encountered, if you remember, in John chapter 4. He offered her a drink by which she would never thirst. And then he said to her, go and call your husband. And Jesus was told, well, I have no husband. And then he said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. This you have truly said. To which she responded, if you remember, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people, you Jewish people, say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. The moment it gets somewhat uncomfortable for her, what does she do? She changes the subject. She begins to discuss the location of worship. She takes the conversation into some theological issue. 
and I can identify with her. And when a pastor begins to speak on a tongue, he's not just teaching, he's meddling. And James is very pointed and very practical. Now, please don't assume that this apostle is a prophet of silence because he's not. Because like Jesus, he will argue you can sin just as much by your silence as you can by your speech. I mean, which one of us have not had some clear open door of opportunity to share Christ with an unbeliever, and all of a sudden we have a case of lockjaw? So James is not promoting silence. What he is promoting is control. Now, if you're taking notes, there's a note-taking outline. If you're online, there's a place to print it out. If you're not sure, there's some people monitoring our various sites. And by the way, for your information, we broadcast at communitybiblechurch.us. We broadcast through YouTube. We broadcast through Sermon Audio, through Roku, through Apple, five different places you can pick up the broadcast. But on our website, you can print out the outline. So let's begin with the influence of the tongue in verses 1 through 5. Notice how he launches directly into the subject here in verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. Now let me share just a little bit of historical background here. This noun for teacher, didaskalos, gives us our English adjective didactic. So when we speak of someone who's didactic, we're describing someone who's teaching or instructing another. And this word teacher comes out of a Jewish context. Remember, he is writing largely to Jewish people. This is one of the earliest books in the New Testament. And the opening verse reminds us he's speaking to the 12 tribes who've been scattered. And in the Jewish culture, the teacher was the single most highly respected person in the entire culture. In fact, the Jew esteemed a teacher greater than his own parents because while his parents might be able to offer him physical life, a teacher rightly dividing the word of truth could offer him spiritual life. And so they placed a high priority in this office of teaching. It was huge in the synagogue, and when the church was formed, people were lining up to want to become teachers. And James says, in this kind of a cultural setting, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. In other words, don't be so quick to become a teacher. And notice he says, my brethren, because he's speaking to believers, those who've been born again through faith in Christ. Now, when we read this negative command, it forces us to ask a critical question. How do you reconcile this negative command with what the writer of the Hebrews says, that we all ought to become teachers, and what Paul says in reference to spiritual gifts? The day God saved you, he gave you a spiritual gift. There's 20 spiritual gifts listed in the New Testament, and every Christian has at least one. And one of those spiritual gifts is the gift of teaching, and another gift is the gift of pastor teacher, two distinct gifts. One is teaching, the other is pastor slash teacher, so to speak. And by the way, you don't pray about what spiritual gift you get because you and I have nothing to do with it. God determines what gift he gives you, and he places each one of us in a particular function in the body of Christ because he needs a wide variety of gifts. And by the way, as you grow in Christ, as you mature in Christ, 
that particular gift that you did not have prior to conversion will begin to show itself and manifest itself. So, for instance, in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 11, it says, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. Four different times in the New Testament, it is affirmed and taught that God gives the gifts as He chooses, as He wills. So none of us, again, have any say, and God expects you to use your spiritual gift. There's coming a time when God will ask you how you did with your spiritual gift. He won't take as an answer, well, I didn't even know there were spiritual gifts, or I didn't know that I had one. And if you're not sure, you might want to go to searchthescriptures.org. There's 128 questionnaire that I have developed. I did my doctoral dissertation on the subject of spiritual gifts, and I think that test might be a starter for some of us, at least if we've grown a little bit. But Peter says in 1 Peter 4, as each one of us has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So if you teach a ladies' Bible study, or you teach a men's study, or an ABF, or you teach an Awana, then you should use that gift. Don't stop. In fact, stewardship implies accountability. And of course, uh, God tells us in Romans 14 and verse 12, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So knowing that when he says, let not many of you become teachers, he's not saying if God has given you the gift of teaching or pastor teacher that you are to bury that gift. In addition to the gift of teaching, there's the general responsibility that every Christian has to teach. And so the writer to the Hebrews says this in the fifth chapter, for though by this time you, and you throughout this verse is plural in Southern English, y'all, for by this time you, plural, ought to be teachers, you, plural, have need, again, for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. I've underlined that in my Bible, this second person plural pronoun. You, by this time, ought to have been teachers. In other words, he is saying you ought to have grown up enough in Christ such that if an unbeliever asks you a basic question, you ought to be able to respond, or a new Christian asks you a basic question, you ought to be able to point him to the Scripture and answer basic questions. That's a general responsibility. It's an aspect of maturity that God wants to build into each of our lives. But above and beyond those who've been gifted by God at conversion to teach, above and beyond the common responsibility that we all have, there's also the office of teaching in the New Testament that can be held by an elder or sometimes what we call a pastor or sometimes in the Old English, a bishop. Some people are called and gifted by God to use their gift of teaching in a formal way to serve in the office. Now, again, in 1 Timothy, he makes the distinction between the fact that while an elder ought to be able to teach, not all elders are called to serve in the office of teaching. An elder, he says in 1 Timothy 3, 2, must be able to teach. In Titus 1 and verse 9, he says an elder must be able to exhort in sound doctrine. Why? Because an elder has to have reached a certain degree of maturity to be able to shepherd the flock of God. But while an elder must be mature and knowledgeable, it doesn't necessarily mean that he is to serve in the official office of teaching. 
And so, for instance, Jesus spoke of the fact that the worker is worthy of his support. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 9, so also the Lord directed that those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Or Paul will say later in 1 Timothy 5, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So those elders worthy of double honor serve in the teaching office of the New Testament, and he's giving them a warning. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren. Just because a man might have the gift of pastor teacher, and by the way, a woman can have the gift of pastor teacher to serve women, never to fill the office of pastor in the New Testament church. That's a clear violation of Scripture, and I don't care what the people are saying, that it's okay for a woman to be a pastor, or a woman can teach in a mixed audience, a Sunday school class, or a woman under her pastor's authority can preach on Sunday morning. No pastor has authority to give you authority that God expressly forbids. And God says that a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man. And in the context, he's dealing with someone who serves as a pastor, not because he's down on women, but because he's up on another role that they are to live out. And that is the high and holy role of making the next generation of preachers and evangelists and those who live for Christ as they raise their children well in their home. And so know that you will incur a stricter judgment. I take that admonition very, very seriously. So I spend a lot of time in the Scripture before I stand behind this pulpit because there's coming a judgment that I will face as a Christian that will be stricter for me as a pastor than it will be for you. And the judgment, of course, is not a judgment of salvation. It's a judgment of service. If you're listening today, understand that the judgment to determine whether or not you go to heaven or hell is settled ever before you take your last breath. The moment you die, you have already destined yourself for either heaven or hell. Jesus said the Son of Man did not come into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. He who does not believe in him is judged already. Why? Because we're guilty, we're fallen. He didn't come with a message of condemnation. But there is a judgment saved people will face. It's called the Bema Seed. It's called the Judgment Seed of Christ. It's the judgment of the just. It takes place in heaven. You're saved by grace, not by works. But the grace that saves should work. And the grace that saves you should teach you to live holy and righteously. And someday you will stand eyeball to eyeball with Jesus Christ. And as a believer, he will determine your reward. And that reward for pastors is predicated on how faithful they were to this office. And let me give you three reasons why a pastor will indeed encompass a stricter judgment. First and foremost, because they are not to teach their opinion, they are to teach the Word of God. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4. He says to young Timothy, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. And then he warned quickly, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Ladies and gentlemen, that time has come. 
I spoke with a pastor this week, and people were on his case for preaching a 45-minute sermon. I'm telling you, those folks wouldn't like this church. <laughs> but you see, they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn, their, turn aside to myths. But you, Sude, I have those two words. They were written on my study for some 20 words, 20 years. Two Greek words, Sude. But you, but you, Timothy, as a pastor, but you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So the key element of shepherding the flock of God is feeding the flock of God. And so when a pastor does that faithfully, Peter says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So first, there comes accountability with teaching and that we are not to give our opinions. We are to preach the truth. Jesus said in Luke 12, 48, for everyone who has been given much, much will be required into whom they entrusted much of him they will ask all the more. And so a teacher will be required all the more of much. And so a pastor who earns his living through preaching the word of God has great accountability I am to come and I am to present to you a well-prepared spiritual meal because I have more time to prepare that meal than you would. And if I come and it's just kind of a lackadaisical, off the cuff, whatever I want to say that morning, God will be displeased. So with increased blessing comes increased influence. With increased responsibility comes increased accountability. So James is saying, oh, you want to be a pastor? You want to be a teacher? You want to serve that office? Have you considered the responsibility? Have you considered that you will incur a stricter judgment? Knowing that I will incur such a judgment, I take it seriously. Remember the apostles in Acts 6? By the way, every apostle is a pastor-teacher. Not every pastor teacher is an apostle. In fact, there are no apostles today, contrary to Roman Catholic doctrine. To have been an apostle, you had to have seen the risen Christ, been personally selected by him. And Paul says, if those things are true, then you'll do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle can do, proving that God had called you and chosen you. In, in Acts 6, he says, it's not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God in order to serve tables. There was a real need, if you remember Acts 6. But we, we apostles, will devote ourselves to what? To prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Listen, there's a lot of meetings and gatherings that people want me to come to, and they want me to come to them because their last pastor came to them, and they think that that's what I should do. I did a funeral not that long ago, and one of the relatives, not a member of the church, said, well, why didn't you come to the house? I said, I would have loved to have been at the house, but I couldn't be at the house. And I said, there are certain things that God has called me to do in terms of preaching the word and evangelizing the lost. And by the way, you're a relative because I was out one night sharing the gospel and not at home with my family, came to faith in Jesus Christ. So there are things that sometimes congregations expect a pastor to do, 
that God does not call them to do. But there's another reason given here in the immediate context of James 3 as to why we should not seek the office of teacher, knowing that we will incur a stricter judgment. Contextually, it's because he's dealing, if you remember, with the subject of the tongue. And teachers use their tongues more. I preach an average of 750 words a minute with gusts up to 1,000. I use my tongue a lot. Teachers deal with words and concepts and ideas and doctrines and influence, and, and they shape the lives of people when they hear what they have to say, for good or for bad. And so if the tongue is not bridled, it can do great damage or it can do great good. You see, to sin with the tongue, either all by yourself or with two or three people is one thing. But to sin with the tongue in front of a whole congregation is far worse. And so he's saying, listen, don't make a mad rush for the pulpit because there's a stricter judgment. The chief shepherd is coming, and you are going to have to give an account. And he will determine based on the accuracy of what we taught, whether it was beneficial or not, how he will reward us. But teachers, understand, are not the only ones who use their tongue. And so now he brings it down to each of us. Look at verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. And all God's people said, that was really weak. But if you cannot take it by what God says, just take it by faith. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone, he says, does not stumble in what he says... He is a perfect man, a teleos man, able to bridle the whole body as well. The Greek word teleos is the word for mature. It doesn't mean sinless. There's only one sinless man who ever walked on the earth, and his name is Yeshua. Only Jesus was sinless, but he's describing here a mature man. And by mature, he doesn't mean someone who's arrived, but someone who has a grown-up and a growing relationship with Christ. We just mentioned in Hebrews 5, he's not referring again to a, a, a someone who has it all together, but they've grown enough where by this time they ought to be teachers. And someone who is indeed spiritual has control over the tongue. He is able, verse 2 says, to bridle the whole body as well. In other words, if you can bridle the tongue, you can bridle the whole body. Think of it this way. If a man can run a marathon, then he can easily run down to the post office a half mile away. If a surgeon can uh, operate on your eye, then he can easily take a splinter out of your finger. And what James is saying here is if you can do the harder thing, then you can do the easier thing. Understand, he is saying here that the tongue is connected to the whole person, the whole body, because again, Jesus said, the, the mouth speaks that which fills the heart. And so, angry, uh, angry countenance reflects an angry heart and typically produces angry words. Or a person with filthy jokes and coarse language is a person with a dirty heart. Jesus said, you brood of vipers. A brood, by the way, someone asked me, what does that verb mean? It's not a verb, it's a a noun. You brood like a covey of of what? Quail, covey of quail. Just wanted to make sure you still remembered. (laughs) You brood of, because I couldn't remember. (laughs) You brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. 
Your tongue, it represents the real you. It tells on you. It's a tattletale, so to speak. So when James says, if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. His point is simple. The last member of your body to be mastered is the tongue. And when you are able to bridle the tongue, then you are mature, then you are spiritual. When you can control the tongue, it doesn't mean that you will be sinless. But the overall direction that your tongue will take will be that that represents maturity. And so now in verses 3 through 5, he goes on to give us three graphic illustrations. He illustrates with three very small things that comparatively speaking have great influence. He looks at the illustration of the bit in verse 3, the illustration of the rudder in verse 4, and then the illustration of a small fire in verse 5. So wanting us to understand that size does not determine significance, he begins with the illustration of the bit, the illustration of the bit. Point A on your outline if you're taking notes. Look now, if you will, at verse 3. Now, if we put the bite, the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. It was not until we lived in Texas that I went to my very first rodeo in Mesquite, Texas. And I have to say, after we went, my appreciation for what those cowboys could do in handling those massive animals grew 10,000%. Even a gentle horse cannot be controlled without a bit as long as they are expected to perform some service, either for riding or pulling a wagon or plowing or whatever it might be, they need a bit to control them, a little piece of metal about five inches long. And so in his analogy, the bit is your tongue, and your tongue controls the whole body. Now, with this illustration, James does not want us to miss this point, that something less powerful is able to control something more powerful. The movement of that little tongue in your mouth can determine a huge amount of direction. Do not ever forget what even a little bit of a word can do to someone. There is a time certainly to be silent, but he's not arguing for a vow of silence. He's asking for control. I think of an incident I have when we were at Duke University. My wife and I went on that campus in 1980. There was one student who had come to Christ through our ministry at UNC, transferred to Duke her junior year. And so we started with one person. Well, within a year, we were the largest group on campus by the grace of God. Largest of any kind of group, religious, non-religious. But because we were evangelicals and we were on a liberal Methodist campus, one of the first Methodist campuses to do civil marriages and then now gay marriages and on and on it went. But the, the so-called pastor of the university who we were accountable to, he didn't like evangelicals and he made that clear the day we arrived. So we didn't get an office. We never had an office. All these other clubs with 10 students, 15, they had an office. So where is my office? The front steps of the chapel. I would meet students, you know where the chapel is? You couldn't miss it. It was like a massive cathedral almost. I'll meet you on the steps of the chapel, and then we'd go find a place in the cafeteria, and I'd share the gospel or open God's Word or whatever it might be. Well, on one particular day, a young man came up to me, and he said, Carl, I just want to thank you for leading me to Christ. 
I said, I'm sorry, I don't even remember your name. When did I introduce you to Christ? He said, you were standing here on these very steps, and you were waiting for an appointment, and you struck up a conversation with me, and you asked me if I was a Christian, and I said, I try to be. And I said, well, trying to be a Christian is like trying to be an elephant. You can try all you want, but it's not going to happen. And he said, I could not get those few words out of my mind. You gave me this booklet, and it sat on the top drawer of my desk, and I read it and reread it over the next couple of years, but I have finally trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. Oh, how the Holy Spirit of God can use just a bit of speech to change the direction of a person's life. And he can do that for good or he can do it for evil. Now James gives us a second illustration here in verse 4, the illustration of the rudder, the illustration of the rudder. Follow along as I read verse 4. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So James tells us that the tongue is also like the rudder of a large ship. It can bring a ship that's buffeted and tossed by the wind into a harbor safely. Or in the wrong hands, as we saw a few years ago with one of those cruise line accidents, right into a reef, turning the boat on its side. Now, according to Acts chapter 27, the Apostle Paul was on a ship that held 276 persons. And for that day, that was a huge ship. And of course, through the centuries, the ships, the aircraft carriers we have could swallow up that ship a thousand times over. But still, even the largest ship in the world is directed by a little small rudder. As this picture shows, during World War II, the Germans had in their fleet a ship known as the Bismarck. And the Bismarck became famous for sinking one of the Brits' most famous World War I ships, the HMS Hood. And the situation became desperate because the Bismarck could not seem to impact the British uh, lanes that were sending ammunition to different places in, in Europe. And so on one particular day, wanting to take it down, they torpedoed the rudder, and the HMS Hood was disabled. And the Bismarck just bombed them and bombed them and bombed them until it sank. A small little rudder disabled that ship. And James is saying, your tongue is like a small little rudder. With your tongue, you can move an army, you can control nations for good or evil. I'm always fascinated to watch the documentaries of either Adolf Hitler or Winston Churchill, and to see the speeches that they would give and how Hitler could, with uh, words, work up the German people into a frenzy for evil, and how Churchill could whip up the British people for good. And so size does not determine significance. Now in verse 5, he gives us a third illustration. He gives us the illustration of the spark, the illustration of the spark. Not only is the tongue like a bit in the horse's mouth, not only is it like a very small rudder on a mighty ship, but it is also like a small fire, a small flame, the Net Bible says, or a spark, the NIV 84 says, like a small spark in a dry forest. Now, the analogy would have been immediately recognizable to James's audience, especially in the first century. 
because fire out of control was very destructive in that day. Indeed, it's a challenge even to our day, even with the most sophisticated equipment and training that some of our own firefighters in this church have. Look at verse 5. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. Here's a picture of the great Chicago fire of 1871. If you remember, Mrs. O'Leary, it is said to have been milking her cow. The cow kicked over the lantern and caused the fire in the barn. And by the time they had it under control, 10,000 people were left homeless. 17,000 buildings were burned to the ground. 300 people died in some $400 million in the date of in 1871 figures was recreated in damage. When I was in the fifth, I was trying to remember if it was the fifth or sixth grade, me and two of my friends, Mark and Alex, I won't give their last names in case they're watching and I don't want to embarrass them, but we decided to have a campfire to roast weenies at a little hill, probably about a 50, 60 acre site. It was called Bald Hill. And we had a grand time building that fire and roasting those hot dogs. And we left it unattended and before long it got out of control and the whole hill began to burn up. Uh, we didn't call the fire department. We were too scared. Unfortunately, uh, it didn't do any serious damage. Listen, kids, I'm not saying that this was the right thing to do. I'm just telling you what happened historically. But a small little campfire took down some 50 acres of grass. And in the last few years, we've witnessed some of the worst fires in California's history. They said one was started just from a cigarette butt. Just a small fire can set a forest aflame. So James wants us to understand that just a few words can bring devastation or destruction like a fire. Proverbs says this in the 16th chapter, a worthless man digs up evil while his words are like scorching fire. Now, fire can be a wonderful servant. You can't get very far without it. You drove here based on a fire and a little spark in your car that ignited the engine. That's what we used to roast our hot dogs that day. And in some parts of the world, I've been to some places in India, and they heat their homes, they cook their meals, they live on dirt floors, and that's all they have. And it's critical. Fire can warm, fire can burn. Fire can bless, fire can destroy. Fire can warm a heart or fire can inflame hatred. Words are like fire. They can hurt, they can be fiery, they can destroy. That's the influence of the tongue. Now, James gives us the second point of this three-little-point sermon. I love James because he's a three-point sermon man, and every preacher loves James for that reason. All the way through this little book, he gives three points, and then he gives three sub-points. It's beautiful. Think with me also the iniquity, the iniquity of the tongue, the iniquity of the tongue. Look now, if you will, at verse 6. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity, the tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Now, that's a very interesting statement. Look at the start again of verse 6. The tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. One translation says, the world of wrongdoing, the world of unrighteousness, the English standard renders it. 
The world of unrighteousness finds its expression in the tongue. Now, the word here for world is the word cosmos, and it's a word that finds its meaning in its context. For God so loved the world, there he's speaking of people. Sometimes the word cosmos is used to describe the planet that we are living on today. Or sometimes it is used to describe a worldly point of view. Love not the world nor the things that are in the world. Why? Because the Satan, the evil one, is energizing this world system, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. So this word is used in this context to describe this depraved, fallen, sinful world perspective that so many people have. And he's telling us that the tongue is capable of spewing out everything that goes against the plans and the values that God has. The tongue can corrupt in the same way that the world system can destroy a culture or a nation. Whether it's boastful pride, whether it's destructive anger, whether it's cutting bitterness, whether it's flattering lust, it can destroy. The tongue is the microcosm of evil. It's the very, to quote him, the very world of iniquity. And again, being the great illustrator that he is, he gives us three figures of speech to underscore the iniquity of the tongue. First, he reminds us that the tongue defiles. The tongue defiles. He writes here in verse 6, the tongue is set among our members is that which defiles the entire body. This word defiles is also translated in Jude verse 23 as pollutes. The word simply meant to stain or to, deplu- to, to pollute. And he's describing the tongue among our body, among our members, is that that's something that pollutes. It could be used of, a, a, of an open, raw sewage that goes into a fresh lake and pollutes the lake outside of the New Testament. And so he wants us to know that our tongue can be like a dirty sewer pipe that can have tremendous defiling consequences. It might be complaining, it might be gossiping, it might be bragging, it might be lying, but not only does the tongue defile, secondly, the tongue destroys. The tongue destroys. He tells us further here in verse six that it sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Now, if you have the New American Standard with marginal notes, You will look out in the margin and you will see that the word hell here is not the traditional word that is often used in the New Testament, Hades, absent from the body, present with the Lord if you're saved, absent from the body today, present in Hades. And someday, as we studied in the Revelation, death and Hades will both find themselves in the lake of fire. But Jesus uses the word Gehenna, and it's the word for hell in its truest translation. It's the word that describes the final resting place, not only of Satan and the false prophet and the Antichrist, but every lost person who has ever lived. And so Jesus uses a very picturesque word that every Jew immediately knew, Gehenna. If you go with me to Israel, and God willing, we're planning to go. And by the way, the trip is filling up unusually fast. But when we go there, we often will go to the Dung Gate, and we will look over the valley of Gehenna, the Hinnom Valley. And the Hinnom Valley in Jesus' day is where Jewish people brought their garbage and their refuge and their dead animals 
in the unclaimed bodies of Gentiles and criminals. And there was a constant burning an unceasing flame and maggots everywhere. And so when Jesus wants to give a word picture of the torment of hell, that's the illustration he uses. Where their worm does not die, where the fire is never quenched, as he says in Mark chapter 9. So James is simply saying here, just as the filth of Jerusalem was all gathered there in Gehenna, the evil filth of our sinful hearts is gathered on the tongue and it produces little hells, so to speak. So James goes on here in verse 6, and he describes the tongue, notice, as that which sets on fire the course of our life, like an arsonist setting a fire. Let me give you a hypothetical illustration. We'll call this man Mr. Arson. Mr. Arson is a business executive. He's been very successful as the CEO of his company, running his business for several years. He's proud of what he has accomplished. He is very punctual, always on time, but on one particular day, he's at the country club having lunch, talking endlessly, and then he realizes he should have left 10 minutes earlier. He jumps into his car, gets on the expressway, does 80 miles an hour down the expressway, and a police officer pulls him over, gives him a tongue lashing, and writes him a huge ticket. I mean, Mr. Arson is absolutely infuriated. He says to himself, why is that police officer not out there getting real crooks and criminals? Why is he picking on innocent, good citizens like me? I wasn't hurting anyone. I was driving safely. He gets back to the office. He is fuming. So he calls in the chief sales director. Davis, get in here. I have a question I need to ask you. Did you get that contract with that company? Well, no, sir. What do you mean, no, sir? Well, we lost the contract. What do you mean you lost the contract? Don't you know how much that company was worth to this business? Don't you know that that would open up a whole new field of development? Davis, I want you to know something. You may have been here for 17 years, but you are not irreplaceable. You better get out there and hustle some business and get another company that will make up for that. Well, Davis... He is infuriated. He begins to mumble to himself, that old codger, that old skin flint. He doesn't do anything around here. He's just a pompous figurehead. I'm the one really who's behind this company. I'm the one that makes this company work. So Davis gets his secretary on the phone. Mrs. Smith, those five letters I gave to you to type for my signature this morning, do you have them done yet? Why, no, sir, you told me that this other issue was a matter of precedence, and when I got around to it, get around to it, nothing. You need to have those five letters on my desk within an hour, or you are done. You are not irreplaceable. Well, she's burning on the inside. She's fuming. She thinks, why the nerve of that guy? He first told me to do this, and now he blames me for not doing that. Well, I'll get them done all right. So Mrs. Smith goes to the receptionist. She says, I need some help, and I need it right now. I have to get these five letters typed within an hour. You just drop everything you do. You don't do anything around here anyway. You read your email all day. You're on social media. You're on Facebook. Oh, occasionally, you answer the phone, and you are not irreplaceable. I can get a new reception if I, if I need one. Well, she thinks, imagine that. 
She begins to fume on the inside. All these people around here, they just drink coffee. They're out on the golf course chatting all the time. I'm the one who represents the face of this company. They call me. I'm the one who interfaces with these people. This company would not be this company were it not for me. She drives home. She sees her 12-year-old son. What are you doing here laying on the floor? I told you to clean up this kitchen. And when you look at yourself, you tore those blue jeans. Go to your room. No supper for you tonight. You talk about being heated, that little guy says. I tore my jeans cleaning up the yard as she asked me to do. I was doing something for her. He goes upstairs. He yells at the cat. You've been up to no good anyway. Get out of my way. Now, I want to ask you a question. Would it not be a lot simpler for Mr. Arson just to have driven to the home of the receptionist and yelled at that cat himself? But you see, James is telling us it doesn't work that way. The tongue is like an arsonist who sets on fire the course of life. Like a hellish arsonist, Proverbs says it this way, a worthless man digs up evil while his words are like scorching fire. A perverse man spreads strife and a slanderer, or you might render it a gossip or a whisperer, as the King, King James says it, separates intimate friends. There are a lot of people who would never think of using vulgarity, never tell a dirty joke, but they gossip, they grumble, they criticize. And James is saying, listen, you are setting into motion a series of consequences that will affect the course of life. The potential for evil is great. If your father raised you where he was always demeaning you, for some of you, unless the grace of God intersected that life, you're still living with that consequences. It still affects you. And some parents say they, they criticize their children more than they ever tell them what they're doing right. The power to change the course of a life for good or for evil is great. You think about it, a dozen guys and women are applying for a particular job. They all appear to be equally qualified, all excelled in their class, all have sterling resumes, all have master's degrees, but you're in that interview, and you said just one word, and that one little word that you said got you the job. Or think about that woman that you proposed to. One little proposal will change the course of your life. In fact, your tongue defines in many ways who you are and where you will end up. An evil tongue makes people think that you are evil. A complaining tongue will make people think that you are a whiner, that you are discontented. A dirty tongue will make people think that you are a dirty old man or woman. An untruthful tongue will make people think that you are a dishonest person. So the tongue defiles. It pollutes like a sewer pipe. The tongue destroys like a hellish arsonist setting on fire the course of life. But notice, too, the tongue devours. The tongue devours. Beyond defiling and destroying, we learn that the tongue devours. Point C, if you're taking notes. In verse 7, he describes the tongue like a wild beast. The tongue devours, devours like, a, like a beast. Notice what he says here in verse 7. Is it any wonder that God put the tongue in a cage behind teeth? 
and walled it in with a mouth. Notice, for every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. So James groups animals into pairs, those which walk and those that fly, those that crawl, and those that can swim. And aren't you amazed what trainers can do with animals? I am. We've tamed lions and horses and elephants and dolphins and parakeets and eagles and whales. And we train sails to clap and elephants to twirl and horses to jump on command. The power is absolutely incredible. And by the way, the word here, the Greek word that's used for tame, does not imply perfect domestication, but bringing an animal under control for the purpose of the trainer. Many years ago, when we were living in Texas, we went to the Texas State Fair, and I said, let's go to the bird show. So we went to the bird show, and it was an outside amphitheater, probably around 400 people, if I remember it correctly. And, and the man who was on the platform said, I need an adult to volunteer. And my two sons, Jeremy and Jordan, kind of prodded me to raise my hand. So I raised my hand, and out of all those people, yes, I was picked. And I came up on the platform, and he was showing us the power of a mighty hawk. Now, if you've ever been to the Texas State Fairgrounds, there's a Ferris wheel. It's called the Texas Giant. And when we were there at the time, they would brag that this was the largest Ferris wheel in the world. It's not any longer. And in this Ferris wheel, about a mile away, on the very top carousel, there was a man standing there with a red flag holding a hawk on his arm. And he said, ladies and gentlemen, that man is going to release this hawk, that hawk. And uh, he said to me, do you have any money in your pocket? And I reached in, I pulled out a dollar bill and he put a glove in my hand and he said, now I want you to hold that up and I don't want you to move. Be still. And so he waved his flag and the man waved his flag and he released the hawk. And that hawk made these huge circles, and they got tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter. Then at one point, it came down like a kamikaze pilot. He hit the air brakes, grabbed my dollar bill, and landed perfectly on the perch. And the whole place exploded and cheered. After all, I was the hero. <laughs> at least in the eyes of my two boys, five and seven at the time. James is saying... For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. And then he delivers some stunning news. Our tongue is a one-of-a-kind creature that cannot be tamed by man. Because of the fall, mankind has lost the commanding ability over the tongue. He has lost dominion over the tongue. We can train seals and lions and dolphins and whales, but we can't tame this little tongue. In fact, he says in verse 8, but no one, circle those two words, no one, they may be the most two important words in the whole paragraph, no one can tame the tongue. It is a restly evil full of deadly poison. Now, in Greek, no one literally means no one without exception. Circle those words, no one, 
because the tongue is untrainable and untamable by man. Yes, it lives in a small ivory cage, but we can't control it. It can crush, it can kill, it can hurt like restless evil full of deadly poison. We used to say it as kids. I don't think kids say it anymore. I don't think they know it anymore. But when you were bullied and you were called some name, you would say, sticks and stones can break my bones, but names will never hurt me. And of course, that's not true. Words can hurt. They're like deadly poison. A woman came to John Wesley, the great Episcopalian who came to this country, rode horseback for 80,000 miles preaching the gospel. He never became a Methodist, but because of his methodical way in which he followed up new believers, they formed a denomination known as Methodists. And she came to Pastor Wesley one day, and she said, I think I know what my gift is. God has given me the gift of being able to speak my mind. To which he wisely replied, I don't think God would mind if you buried that gift. (laughs) Speaking everything that comes to your mind is unwise. It's poisonous. Proverbs says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. In fact, the bitter pain of a word against us can last a lifetime, and a broken bone can heal so much faster. Paul says this in Galatians 5, but if you bite and devour one another, take care that you're not consumed by one another. Isn't that a strange thing that he's writing to believers? They're practicing Christian cannibalism, biting and devouring one another with their words. It's destructive, like a poison that has entered in. We, we saw one government trying to destroy one of the water systems recently in the United States, and they introduced poison into the clean water. Thank God they caught it. Now, none of us would let loose poisonous snakes in this auditorium this morning. But what about our poisonous tongues? Sometimes it's just a sarcastic, biting, unkind, gossiping word that's like a poison that will tear apart a life. There is the influence of the tongue. There is the iniquity of the tongue. Third and finally, James speaks of the inconsistency of the tongue. When he describes the tongue's inconsistency, he makes three points. First, he reminds us that all Christians are guilty. All Christians are guilty. Look at verse 9. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we, circle that word we again, second time, with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. Now, I appreciate that James would include himself by using the first person plural pronoun. He doesn't say, with it, you bless our Lord. With it, you curse each other. No, he says, we all do this. Even a mature apostle can at times misuse his tongue. Whether you are the mature believer or whether you are the newly born again Christian, it's a battle within. And it's sobering to think that we can do this to someone who is made in God's likeness. Some Christians might be tempted to say, well, what I said is not really all that bad. What I'm saying about this person is not all that destructive. 
But when you speak against another person, and we'll see there is a place to reveal, before we're done with this epistle, false doctrine and false teachers. He's not talking about that here. He's talking about destructive, poisonous words that we may use. We studied not long ago, God said, not only honor the king, but honor all men. It might be the sales girl in Walmart. It might be the person behind the counter of McDonald's. It might be the person on the phone that has aggravated you to no end and they can't seem to get anything done. And God says, that person is made in my likeness. That person is made in my image. And so you're not to demean that person. James wants us to know that God is interested not only in what we say in here, but what we say out there. We're all guilty of inconsistency in at least two ways. With our tongue, point B, we bless. With our tongues, we bless. Look at verse 10. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Isn't that interesting? We can go to church, we can read the Bible, we can sing the hymns, we can praise God, we can share a testimony, we can pray together, and 10 minutes after we leave the church, we're scorching the most significant people in our lives. With the tongue, we can pray, we can teach, we can praise, but we can also attack and destroy. We can sing, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. And then in the car on the way home, we're gossiping about some person we encountered. Now, the word bless here is a compound word, ulageo. U means good or well. Legeo means to speak. And so the Greek word ulageo gives us our word eulogy. We had a funeral here yesterday, and there were, were several people who eulogized that brother in Christ who went home to be with the Lord. Now, I've been at some funerals, not that I've done, understand, where people have been eulogized. I'm thinking, is that the same fellow? I mean, it does, I didn't know him to be that. But you don't usually speak negatively of someone at a funeral. In fact, people tend to overstate the case. Oh, this dear man, he never said an unkind word in his whole life about another person. I've heard that in so many funerals here. But of course, James would not say that's true. He said, we've all been guilty of saying unkind words. With our tongues, we bless, but also with our tongues, we curse. Let me read the first part of verse 10 again. From the same mouth comes both blessing and cursing. Now, we should also note that the Greek word translated here, cursing, is not the word for profanity or vulgarity. It's a word that means a demeaning word, a cutting word, an unkind word. It literally means calling down curses. When you slander someone, when you gossip against someone, when you make an unfair, unjust accusation against someone, you are calling them down. You are putting yourselves above them as if you are better, and you are calling them down. And so James says it shouldn't be this way. Our vocabulary with one another should not bring our fellow brothers down. Like a spring of water from the same fountain should not come both bitter 
water in sweet water in, in bad water? Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? And the rhetorical answer is absolutely not. Of course it does not. I mean, what kind of fountain would we have where at the same time it can put out both sweet water and bitter water? Yet James says, that's what our tongue does. Now notice verse 12. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh? James is saying that not even nature behaves like the tongue. God's ways are always consistent. An olive tree doesn't produce figs. A fig tree doesn't produce bananas. A fresh water fountain doesn't produce bitter water. And James is reminding us that all of God's creation is consistent. But the tongue, because of the fallen nature of man, is not. Let me give you three words by way of application this morning of how we can bring our tongues under control. Three simple words. The first word is confess. Confess your sin. We must confess our sin. Now, the word confess, homo, legao, homo, we get our word homosexual, homo sapien. It means the same, legao, to speak. When we confess, we're speaking the same thing that God says. We can't blame. We can't say, well, the reason I got so angry is because you did this to me. No, all they might have done was surface what was already in the well. We can't make excuses. We have to own our sin if we're ever going to make any progress. And if you want to check your spiritual temperature this morning, take a hard look at your tongue. Check out the fruit of your lips. Because again, the mouth speaks, that which fills the heart. But God promises us if we confess our sins, He is faithful time and time again. He is righteous. He's not violating His character, both to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is a verse not written to the lost. It's a verse written to the saved who have already received eternal forgiveness. And this verse is written in the context of not getting saved again or keeping your salvation, but maintaining your intimacy with God, that the Spirit of God has freedom to work in your life. So confess. The second word closely related is depend. Depend on the Holy Spirit. We must depend on the Holy Spirit. You see, the problem is not our tongues. The problem is our hearts. And you, cannot, you might as well try to control your tongue as you can control the Niagara Falls. You can't do it. He said no one can control the tongue. King David so wisely wrote in Psalm 141.3, Set a guard, he prayed. Set a guard, Yahweh. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. He wrote in Psalm 19, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. We need the Holy Spirit of God. We need the Lord God. And under the new covenant, he has sent the Spirit to live in us. And so Paul says to the church at Galatia, I say, walk by the Spirit that you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. I've written it in the flyleaf of every Bible I've ever bought. When I try, I fail. When I trust, I succeed. I heard those words as a new Christian in Park Street Congregational Church 
from Corey Temboom. And in those words is a wealth of theology. When James says no one can tame the tongue, he is actually giving us hope because he wants us to know that while you can't tame it, God can through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. So stop trying and start trusting and depending on someone who can do it for you. Paul will say to the church at Coloss, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. How did you receive Christ Jesus the Lord? You came in a state of total bankruptcy. If you were saved, you came to God bankrupt, admitting you could do zero to earn salvation, and you put your full weight of confidence in what Jesus did by his death, burial, and resurrection to save you and to change you. That's how you now walk in him with the same sense of bankruptcy. Lord, you must do it through me, because when I try, I fail. When I trust, I succeed. The third word is meditate. We must meditate on Scripture. Only the believer who's controlled by the Spirit of God will begin to display the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and last in the list, self-control. James has already stated in chapter 1 that the Christian who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, that's the one who finds real genuine freedom. And so the Holy Spirit of God uses the Word of God as you meditate on Scripture to change us. If you go home and you feed on trash tonight, just forget it. Again, I'm wary of these pastors who are giving these illustrations from R-rated movies trying to relate to the culture. They've got their mind in the gutter. If you're going home and you're watching the average television program and downloading the average movie, and I know there are bright exceptions, don't think God's going to change you because he does not. He does not work in a dirty heart. And the word of God that you may meditate on and think on will never really take root in a life-changing way. Now, if you're here and you've never met Christ, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And the self-improvement program will never work for you. You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. That's not just a description of, you know, these enthusiastic Christians. Well, I'm a Christian, but he's the born-again kind. No, unless you are born again, you will never see the inside of heaven. And the only way for you to be born again is to come to Jesus, to own your sin. If you're not willing to call it sin, you'll never be saved. I spoke to someone this week, this past week now, and want to know what I thought about incest and homosexuality and transgenderism. This is what the generation that is growing up is thinking. What's really wrong with it? Everything. Just like fornication and adultery and drunkenness. And yes, the misuse of the tongue. The ground is leveled the cross. We need a Savior. And only Jesus can save. Now, our Holy Father, we thank you that in your providence, that after the Lord Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, that he had at least four other brothers 
and sisters, plural, that one of those dear brothers that grew up with him was this man, James, who gave us this letter. Thank you for what you did in his life after the resurrection. And thank you for the instruction he is giving us to shape our lives and to conform us more, Lord Jesus, into your precious image. We heed the words that he gave us in the first chapter, that we don't want to be those who just hear the word and don't apply it. So help us to take a hard look this afternoon. Where there's a need for confession, may we bring it to your throne of grace to find cleansing. May we depend not on ourselves, but admit our total inadequacy. For Lord Jesus, you said without you we can do nothing. May we learn to depend upon the Spirit. Teach us to walk by the Spirit. And may we fill our minds in a clean heart with the truth of Holy Scripture. Father, I pray for someone because I know there's someone in some state, some country that is live streaming, maybe in one of these auditoriums or in one of our campuses this morning, who has never met Jesus Christ. They do not have the assurance that if this were their last day, that heaven would be their home. Help them to embrace your free gift, paid for in full with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus, Thank you that you can say that if we'll call on his name, we will instantly and forever be saved. Help someone, Father, by the work of the Spirit to say, Lord Jesus, save even me. And I ask it for your glory and in your holy name. Amen. Would you stand? We'll sing a hymn of invitation. And maybe you're here and there's a decision you need to make. Maybe you've received Christ and you've never made it public. The mouth speaks what's in the heart. Jesus can make an analogy that if we won't openly confess him before men, he'll never confess you before his Father who's in heaven. You're not saved by walking in aisle, but I want to tell you if you're saved, you're not ashamed of him. You won't be ashamed to be baptized after you're saved because that's the only way it's done in the New Testament. Maybe you've done those things, but you need a church home. And this is a place where you can grow and bring your friends lost and saved. And you need a place where you can have a part and serve with God's people. Here's your an op our opportunity this morning. We're going to sing this hymn. If you have a decision to make, step out now and meet me here in the front.